Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This chapter 4 as we continue through the book of Exodus together. Albert Einstein was one of the most brilliant men to ever live. He came up with the theory of relativity, all of the amazing science and issues that Albert Einstein brings to the table. But one time he was asked, what's the most difficult thing for him to understand? And here was his answer, the income tax. I went to the Johns Hopkins website, and it gave you the most difficult things to do. The things that are the most difficult, the hardest things to do. And so let me just list some of these for you and see if maybe you can guess. What's the most difficult language for Americans to learn? It's Japanese is what they listed on there. What is the most difficult math problem to solve? Here's what they said. I'm going to read this because I'm not good at math. Using only a compass and an unmarked straight edge, divide a 60-degree angle into three equal parts. In other words, construct a 20-degree angle with no protractors allowed. Can you do it? The answer is no. It cannot be done. Somebody knows their math out there. What's the most difficult mystery of astronomy to understand? They would say it's the issue of dark matter. What's the most difficult surgical operation to perform? It's called the Whipple procedure. It's actually the removal of pancreatic cancer. And I guess the pancreas is the most deeply embedded organ in your body. And so to get to it is very, very difficult. It's called the Whipple procedure. Now, why do I bring up to you these very difficult things to understand? These things that are hard to wrap our minds around. Well, today's passage... I've been praying about this all week, whether I should preach this or not, and i got to preach it, is the most difficult passage to understand in the entire Old Testament. Just laying it out there. What we're going to look at today is shrouded in mystery. It's caused scholars to be baffled. I've spent a lot of time this week in the books, in the original languages, trying to decipher what this passage of Scripture really means. So let's just turn to Exodus chapter 4 and pick up in verse 18. We're, we're leaving off right where we left, where we're picking up where we left off last week, where God appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, and now it's time for Moses to take action and obey God and go back to Egypt. So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father in law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... 
See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And here's where we get to the difficult part. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, aren't you blessed to know what this passage is all about this morning? Let me just say from the very beginning, there's more things about this passage I don't know than what I do know. So there's going to be a lot of things. If you come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor Sean, what does this mean? I will say, I don't know. Now, regardless of what we can understand about this passage of Scripture that's shrouded in mystery, there's one thing I do know. And this is a theme of Exodus And I think this passage of Scripture captures a a small portion of what the theme of Exodus is as well as what the theme of the whole Bible is. So here it is. A holy God saves His people by grace through the shedding of blood. That's that's what the whole Bible's about. A holy God saves His people by grace through the shedding of blood. We see it in the book of Exodus. We see it here. Now, last week... Moses stood before the Lord at the burning bush and tried to run from God's call on his life to go back to Egypt. And he he protested five times. Remember, five things Moses stood up and said to God. Number one, who am I? God's answer, I will be with you. Number two, what's your name? God said, I am who I am. Number three, what if they don't believe me? God said, do these three signs and they will believe you. Number four, I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not eloquent. God's answer, I will be your mouth. And what's the last thing? Number five, please send someone else. And the Lord got angry with Moses and said, I'm going to send Aaron to help you. So it's a crisis of faith. Moses at the burning bush. God reassures him multiple times, I'm with you. I am who I am. I'm going to be your mouthpiece. I'm going to be with you. And so God meets Moses at his moment of weakness. And so Moses finally gets to the point where he's ready to go back to Egypt. And so in verse 18, he goes to his father-in-law Jethro and asks for permission. In that culture, it was customary to ask permission. Can I pack up Zipporah, my, my wife, and my two sons, Gershom and Eleazar, and can we head back to Egypt? And so Jethro gives permission. And then in verses 17 and verse 20, you see repeated this whole idea of the staff, that Moses took the staff of God in his hands. Now, this is not a magic wand like what you'd see on Harry Potter. It's not magic. It's a visible reminder that God was with Moses every step of the way. And then I thought, well, this morning I could preach verse 21, which says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, that's hard enough to understand. We'll get to that another day because it shows up when we get to the ten plagues. I could have said, well, I could spend all day today talking about what it means for God to harden somebody's heart. But yet we get to verses 24 through 26. 
which are the most, what scholars would say, are the most difficult passages to truly understand in the entire Old Testament. And so what I want to do this morning is to address this passage of Scripture in three, three stages or three issues. So I'm going to tell you where we're going this morning. First of all, what does this passage mean? What does it even mean? Secondly, what's the importance of circumcision? And number three, what are the practical applications or implications or things that we can learn from it today? So let's tackle this difficult passage of Scripture. First of all, what does this passage mean? Now, the original Old Testament's written in Hebrew. And when you go back and you read the Hebrew, it's very difficult to understand what it's really saying here. Who's talking about what? So, so let's just read it real quick. At a large place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, there's a lot of questions. Question number one, who does the Lord intend to put to death? Who's the him? Is it Moses? Is it his son, Gershom? Is it his younger son, Eleazar? Who's the him that God seeks to put to death? The majority view in scholarship, and this is the one that I tend to agree with, again, we can't be dogmatic on this, is that it's Moses. God intends to put Moses to death. Okay? Question number two. How does God do this? Was Moses paralyzed? Was he struck with a seizure? Did an angel come and attack him? We don't know. We just know that he's incapacitated to where he doesn't actually perform the circumcision. Zipporah, his wife, does. And then look at verse 26. The Lord let him alone. Pretty cryptic as far as what's going on there. Okay, question three. How did Zipporah know what to do? And why did she do it instead of Moses? I got a good, good answer to that. I don't know. Question number four. Why was the Lord angry with Moses? I think we can get the answer to this. It's because his son was not circumcised. Okay, which brings up another question. Big question. Why wasn't Moses' son circumcised? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell you. But some scholars have guessed. So let me give you some of the guesses that the scholars have. And I think we can go with these as, as good attempts to help try to fill in the gaps. So think about this for a moment. Israel was God's chosen people, and God had given Abraham the covenant of circumcision. The Egyptians did not practice circumcision. The Midianites did not practice circumcision in the same way that the Israelites did. I can't get into all the details there. But it could be that for Zipporah and for Jethro, the act of circumcision was distasteful. It was unnecessary. It was antiquated. It was, it was weird to them. And so instead of circumcising his son, Moses tries to keep peace in the family and says, I don't want to cause waves in the family. I don't want to cause a big issue with my father-in-law and my wife. We've had too many arguments. I don't need to argue about something else, so I just won't circumcise my son because maybe it's distasteful to my wife. Now, if anybody has a right to speak on this with authority, we'll give it to John Calvin. Here's what he said. He said, God was angry with Moses for, quote, his negligence, for he had not circumcised his son from forgetfulness or ignorance 
or carelessness only, but because he was aware it was disagreeable either to his wife or father-in-law. We really don't know, but we could guess that maybe, just maybe, instead of obeying God, Moses is trying to keep the peace in the family. Again, we don't really know. Another Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser, said this. He said, for one small neglect, apparently out of deference for his wife's wishes, or perhaps to keep the peace in the home, Moses almost forfeited the opportunity to serve God and wasted 80 years of preparation and training. One small act of negligence. Or is it one small act of negligence? We'll find out here in just a moment. Question number six. What in the world does it mean you're a bridegroom of blood? What does it mean to be a bridegroom of blood? And whose feet did she throw the foreskin on? Your text says Moses in the ESV, but that's not in the original Hebrew. So we don't know if she threw it at Gershom's feet or she threw it at Moses' feet. I take it that she probably threw it at Moses' feet. And was she acting in repugnance for having to do this? Maybe she thought, I have no choice but to circumcise my son because Moses is in the throes of death. And and if my son could possibly get killed, if Moses is going to get killed, so what mother wouldn't in her right mind in that moment take the knife and circumcise her son? And then she, the, the little Hebrew, she threw it at the feet of him. Now, I take it to be Moses. And what does bridegroom of blood mean? You're a bridegroom of blood to me. That's really hard to translate in the original language. It could mean that she's excited that her husband has come back to life in a sense. And so you're, you're, it's like we've gotten married all over again. You're my bridegroom of, of blood. I've, I've shed blood through circumcision. And in a way, I've won you back as my husband that I was about to lose. And now I have you back again. It's as if we're, we're married all over again because you're about to die. Now, there's some things in this story that I don't understand. And there's some things in the story that I kind of understand. So here's the issue. God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instructed Moses to include this in the Bible. So we've got it here. So I could do one of two things as your pastor. I could say, this is a really difficult passage of Scripture, so we're just going to skip over it. And you guys would be, ah, he's a coward. Or I could say, let's deal with it the best we can. And realize that it's cryptic, it's mysterious, we may not know what it means, but if we're going to do verse-by-verse exposition of the Scriptures, we've got to go through the text and deal with what it says. Because it's in the Bible for a purpose. It's there, and so we must deal with it. So, like I said, there's a lot of things I don't know about this passage of Scripture, but I'm, I'm confident of one thing. There's one thing I can step here and say, I'm confident of one thing. This passage is about circumcision. Can I give you that? This passage is about circumcision. And I can tell you this. God is mad at Moses for not circumcising his son. And once the son's circumcised, the Lord's not mad at him anymore. You, you can see that in the passage of Scripture as well. So you ask the question, this is really strange. This whole issue of, of circumcision and why didn't Moses circumcise and, and why did Zipporah? So, so that's question number one. What does this thing mean? I did my best to explain what it means. Let's ask the second question. I do know this passage is about circumcision. So let's ask the second big ticket question. What is the importance of the covenant sign of circumcision? 
Now, we don't have to guess here because God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 instructions on the covenant sign of circumcision. So I'm going to invite you to turn over one book to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Turn. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Uh, Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. Genesis, and we'll come back to Exodus in a minute, but let's just, if this passage is about Moses not circumcising his son, why is it such a big deal for God to be mad at him for not doing it and almost wanting to put him to death? Whether it's God putting Moses to death or whether it's God putting his son to death, again, we don't know. I take it to be Moses, but one thing you have to realize is somebody's going to die because they're not circumcised. What's the importance of it? Genesis 17, 9 through 14. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign, you may want to underline that in your Bibles, of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with you money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant be in the flesh, an everlasting covenant, and any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds on the whole issue of circumcision, but let me just give you three things about circumcision. And kids, you can go back home and let your parents explain to you what this is. I'm just assuming you know what it is. First, circumcision symbolizes inclusion into the covenant family of God that he established by grace alone. It's a covenant sign that you belong to the family of God and that he saved you by grace. Circumcision does not save any Israelite. Abraham in chapter 15, okay, this is Genesis chapter 17, and Genesis chapter 15 is when God, in a sense, saves Abraham by grace. God establishes his covenant with Abraham. He puts Abraham in a deep sleep, and he cuts two pieces of animal, and God walks between the animal, and he cuts a covenant with Abraham, and God comes through like a smoking pot, and God makes these promises to Abraham that's totally one-sided, saying, I'm establishing my covenant with you, Abraham, by grace alone. So Circumcision is an outward symbol that you've been saved by grace in the covenant of Israel. It's the marker in the flesh that you were saved by grace. Okay, second, circumcision indicated the need for cleansing. What do you do in circumcision? It's a hygienic act of cutting off. It's symbolic of sin and pollution and uncleanness in your life that needs to be cut out, cut away, so that you can be holy unto the Lord. And so it's a symbol of purification, of being set apart for God, of having things cut away from you. But for our purposes this morning, probably the most important thing, and we see this in verse 14 here in Genesis 17, the third thing is, not to be circumcised 
meant to be cut off from God's people. And look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male, remember our story in Exodus, his son is uncircumcised, in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Cut off from God's people means you're not part of God's family. You're under condemnation. You've broken the covenant. You're not saved by grace. You're not part of God's family. You've broken the covenant. So we really don't know why Moses didn't circumcise his son because the text never tells us. But we do know this. As a good Israelite, Moses would have known the importance of circumcision and the importance of not being circumcised. You can't convince me that Moses didn't know what would happen if his son was not circumcised. Cut off from God's people. Moses was acting more like an Egyptian or a Midianite than he was as an Israelite. Because to not be circumcised was punishable by death. So here's the bottom line. How could Moses become the leader of the entire nation of Israel if his own son didn't bear the covenant mark of circumcision? How would he have the clout to walk back into Israel and say, hey, follow me, when his own son wasn't even circumcised? You see the importance of it? It's, it's not just a, a neglect that Moses did because he, he wanted to make peace in the family. This affected his leadership of the entire nation, his obedience to God. So you have this mysterious story. God comes to kill, whether it's Moses or his son, we really don't know. He's not circumcised. Zipporah, not Moses, takes out the flint knife, circumcises, throws the foreskin, it smears the blood on Moses' feet, and then God's okay with it. Story finished, right? Okay. Let's ask the third question this morning. What are the implications of this mysterious passage for us today? You're walking away like, okay, I have no idea where you're going to go with this, Sean. How does this apply to us? Well, I've got five of them for you. So here's the first. God has the sovereign right to express his wrath against sin. God has the sovereign right to express his wrath against sin. Now, this should be the first thing that jumped out to you in this passage is that God wanted to put somebody to death. Did that just jump out to you? I think it's out of the blue. Lodging place at night, God wanted to put him to death. Now, wait a minute. What's this all about? God wanting to put somebody to death? Especially if it's Moses? Now, what, 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 what have we seen all these weeks with Moses? He was in front of the burning bush, and, and God reassured him, and God said, you're the man, and God said, go back. And then so Moses said, okay, I'm going to go back. He goes to his father-in-law and says, can I go back? His father says, you can go back. They head back, and what happens? Boom, all of a sudden, God shows up and says, I want to kill you. Now, let me just ask you a question. Was Moses innocent? Even though he was God's chosen instrument, was he innocent? No, he was God's chosen leader, sovereignly chosen to serve, uh, to, to lead the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But he was still a sinner who deserved death. See, here's the reason why we don't like the Old Testament sometimes. You know, the Old Testament talks about God killing people. 
And supposedly the God of the Old Testament is nicer than the God of the New Testament. We, we play that game. Here's why we fundamentally don't like passages of Scripture like this. Because we automatically default into thinking that God is obligated to save us. And he doesn't have the sovereign right to punish sin. Let's just be real honest. What did Genesis 17, 14 say? Any male that was not circumcised was cut off from Israel. He had broken the covenant. It was punishable by death. Moses was not doing this out of negligence. I kind of forgot. I'll get around to it someday, God. It was out of willingness, not ignorance. This threat of death, whether it was an attack by an angel, we don't really know, or paralyzed, some type of seizure, we really don't know what it was. We just know in some way Moses was incapacitated. It was God's way of showing Moses his own personal sin and that God is a consuming fire and that God never does once bend on his righteous requirements. Does God ever loosen his standard just because we're sinners? For Moses, the standard was, you need to circumcise your son. If not, you know the covenant-breaking reality. So we don't know what was going through Moses' mind. Maybe he's thinking, I'll get around to it someday. Or maybe it's not that big of a deal. After all, it's just a little minor surgery. Why is circumcision even a big deal to God anyway? I mean, who cares? Force get on, force get off. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Well, to God, it was a big deal. Sin is a big deal to God, no matter how small or how great. And by nature of God's righteousness, He can express anger against sin. Let's talk about wrath for a moment. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Okay, righteousness is an attribute of God. Holiness is, a, is, a, a, is an attribute of God in His essence and who He is. Wrath, on the other hand, is, is God's active, expressive anger towards sin. Where God is acting in anger toward sin. And wrath is, not, wrath is not where God is out of control like a Greek god that's throwing lightning bolts because he had a bad hair day. It's not like God's a little toddler over in the corner crying because you took away his toys. It's not this impetuous, out-of-control, random type of anger that we attribute to humans. No, God's wrath is his right as a holy and righteous God to express anger against sin in whatever way he deems necessary. So for him to come against Moses and threaten to kill him, God had every right to do that. Now, lest you think that wrath is only in the Old Testament, that's the Old Testament. No more wrath in the New Testament. That's the Old Testament God, different than the New Testament God. You know, you had a different God in the Old Testament. You have a, you have a different God in the New Testament. There are different gods. Wrath in the Old Testament, love in the New Testament. Let me just tell you, there's a great Greek word for that, and you know what it is. It's called baloney. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. This is Paul, New Testament. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming on account of these sins. So God has the sovereign right to express his wrath against sin. Moses, I'm going to put you to death. But here's the second thing. 
God's wrath can only be appeased by the shedding of blood. There's a whole lot we don't know about this text, but what do we know? Okay, God's angry at Moses. Zipporah performs circumcision. The Hebrew text indicates that she threw the foreskin at Moses' feet and smeared the blood. And then verse 26 says, God let him alone. God relented from wrath. So in this microcosm of this passage of Scripture, you see God's wrath relenting because of the shedding of blood. What does the Bible tell us about the shedding of blood? Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, in this passage, the shedding of blood was circumcision. For us, it's crucifixion. Not circumcision, crucifixion. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 5, 8 through 10? Blood, wrath, salvation, it's all in this passage of Scripture. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. How are we saved from the wrath of God? By the blood of His Son. How was Moses saved from the wrath of God? By the blood of circumcision. How are we saved from the wrath of God? By the blood of crucifixion. Third. The circumcision that truly counts comes from God changing our hearts in salvation. That's the circumcision that truly, heart, that truly counts. What is circumcision? It's a cutting away of the foreskin. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. God will circumcise not your foreskin, but your, your heart. Stephen, when he's in front of his accusers, when they're about ready to stone him to death, Acts 7, 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. You're uncircumcised of heart. Okay, Colossians 2, 11 through 14 explains this circumcision done to us. At the Old Testament, it was a circumcision done by hands on the foreskin. And for us, it's a circumcision done without hands on the heart. Colossians 2, 11-14. In Him, that's Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, spiritual in nature, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, you were also raised with Him through the powerful working of Him who raised Him from the dead. Okay, so circumcision is spiritual. It's not done with hands. It's spiritual. The circumcision is a union in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, symbolized not by an outward cutting, but by an underwater dunking. It's a whole other sermon how circumcision relates to baptism, but baptism is the outward sign that you're saved by grace. Verse 13 and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God had made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal mans. He did this. 
by nailing it to the cross. It's taking somebody that's spiritually dead and making them spiritually alive by forgiving them of their sins. In other words, the circumcision that we experience is what's, what's called regeneration or the new birth. The Holy Spirit comes and cuts out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That's what Ezekiel 36, 26 says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, these three issues are all spiritually related to salvation. God has the right to express wrath. God's wrath is appeased by the shedding of blood. This new birth experience is a circumcision of the heart. Now, let me just give two other issues related to spiritual leadership. Here's number four. Fathers, talking to fathers here, must take the responsibility to lead their families to trust in Jesus by grace alone. Fathers. How could Moses lead two million people if he couldn't lead his own home? How could he be a quote-unquote father to the nation if he couldn't be a father to his own family? He put Zipporah in a very poor situation. It was unfair to her. He should have been the spiritual leader. He should have circumcised his son. He should have never left on that journey without his son being circumcised. He should never have put his wife in a position where she had to take the knife and do it. He failed his family in that moment. He failed his wife. And let me just say this, dads. If you lack in spiritual leadership, it's going to create a vacuum, and your wife's going to take that leadership because it has to be done. And she's going to spiritually raise your family and you're going to be passively on the sidelines watching her do it, which in a sense is unfair to her to carry the burden alone. So dads, don't be like Moses here and not lead your families. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Moses was not loving his wife in that moment. He wanted to keep peace in the family. But by keeping peace in the family, he was actually being disobedient to God. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How could Moses father a nation if he couldn't father his own family? How could Moses lead a nation if he couldn't lead his own family? Okay, here's the fifth application. Spiritual leaders must also have holy lives that serve as an example to the people they lead. Moses was not just a father to his family. He was a leader of the nation. He was the pastor to the people. And if he was not in his own home willing to obey the Lord, how would he have the spiritual authority to lead the entire nation to believe in God? Isaiah 52, 11. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Moses was, in a sense, bearing the vessels of the Lord in the sense he was going to go out and speak for God. Moses was going to speak on behalf of God. If he's going to go out and speak on behalf of God, he needed to be pure. He needed to be ready. Same thing with spiritual leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, 
Anybody in spiritual leadership who speak on behalf of the Lord, who lead God's people, who teach God's people, we too need to be undefiled and pure from sin. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, to the office of a pastor, an elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, what's the most important takeaway from this mysterious passage of Scripture? Here's the bottom line. You are either in God's covenant of grace by faith alone or you're not in his covenant of grace by faith alone. There's no middle ground. And that's the way it's always been from the very beginning. So let me ask you a question. Can you simultaneously at the same time be circumcised and uncircumcised? No. Can you simultaneously at the same time be in God's family and outside of God's family? Can you simultaneously at the same time be spiritually alive and spiritually dead? You can't. You're either one or the other. And for Moses, it was an issue of circumcision being the outward symbol of the inward reality that he was saved by grace through the shedding of blood. You see, Moses was a sinner who deserved God's wrath for his personal disobedience. You and I are sinners who deserve God's wrath for our own disobedience. God's wrath against Moses was appeased through the shedding of blood through circumcision. God's wrath against our sin was accomplished through the shedding of blood of crucifixion. Jesus on the cross. Once the shedding of blood had been applied to Moses' feet, look again at verse 26. So he led him along. He let him go. Once the blood was applied, he let him go. Once the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to your life by faith, God, in a sense, lets you go. Let you go what? He lets you go from being under his condemnation. He gives you forgiveness. He lets your record go clean. He cleanses you through his blood. You see, on that final day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord, what will make the most difference, what's going to matter the most, is whose family you're in, what side you're on. Has your personal sin against a holy God been taken away by the blood of Jesus? Have you trusted in Christ alone to save you? Are you a part of God's family by free gift of grace? The book of Exodus is not about who's innocent and who's guilty. Israelites, innocent. Moses, innocent. Egyptians, guilty, bad. No, the book of Exodus is everybody's guilty. Moses is just as guilty as Pharaoh. The only difference is Moses was part of the covenant family of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through the shedding of blood. You're either in his family or you're not. How do you get in his family? The blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has to be shed for your sins. And you must trust in Jesus alone to be your Lord and Savior. So my question for you this morning is, have you done that? Have you taken that step to say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. I know I deserve God's penalty. And I can't clean myself up or save myself or forgive myself or do anything 
I trust in Jesus alone who shed his blood. And once you do that, guess what? God lets you go. He lets you go from out of being under punishment to being forgiven, to being cleansed, to being part of his family. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's spend time thanking him that the shedding of blood forgives us of all sin. We don't know a lot about this passage of scripture. It's, it's very mysterious to me and even after preaching and I still don't know fully all that it's about. But Lord, one thing we do know is that you are a righteous and holy God. You are perfect in all ways and you have every sovereign right to express anger against our sin. And Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you are the Lamb of God that takes away our sin, that the, the shedding of blood forgives us. And so Jesus, thank you that God's anger against our sin is only taken care of through you. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you circumcise our hearts. You make us spiritually alive. You take out that dead, stony, unresponsive, rebellious heart and give us new life. It's a circumcision done without hands. So thank you, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for doing this great work of salvation. Lord, I pray a special prayer over fathers, especially, that they would be the spiritual leaders of their homes. And they would not abdicate that leadership, but would be serious about leading their homes to faith in Christ and obedience. Lord, I also pray for us as spiritual leaders, our, our elders, our staff, our deacons, our growth group and small group leaders, all those that are in spiritual leadership in this church. Lord, will we be clean vessels that carry your word? Lord, we love you. We thank you. We are thankful that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Jesus, you shed blood. Thank you that we're saved not through circumcision, but through, cir through crucifixion. The lamb that was slain. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, King Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen.